Like pots, I smashed them. Tribute I laid upon them. Together with the cities up to Mount Sawe, a peak of the Lebanons, Mount Baal Tzafon, 19 districts of Hamath, together with the cities of their environs, which lie on the shore of the Sea of the Setting Sun, which had gone over to Azaria in revolt and contempt of Assyria, I brought within the borders of Assyria. Tiglath Pileser III Hello everyone, and welcome to the Conquerors Podcast. Episode 5.4, Tiglath Pileser III Before I begin this episode, I wanted to start by saying that this week's Great Conqueror is going to be the first one whose story will span more than one episode. In the first one, I will cover the history of Assyria from the death of Shalmanassar III, our previous Great Conqueror, to the rise of Tiglath Pileser III his stabilization of the empire, and his first conquest, while only in the next episode will we get to his truly great conquest. We have lots to cover, so let's begin. Last episode, we covered the reign and conquests of Shalmanassar III, whose 35-year-long reign saw the continued expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire on its path to become the greatest power the world had ever seen. In his last years, however, a serious threat appeared in the form of a great rebellion in the Assyrian heartland itself. This rebellion, led by one of the sons of Shalmanassar, threatened the integrity of the empire as well as its very existence, and Shalmanassar, an old man by now, probably lacked the energy and will to face it on his own. And although he was aided by his son and heir, the future Shamshi Adad V, as well as his commander-in-chief Dayan Ashur, the great king's last years were probably gloomy ones and when he died in 842 BC, the rebellion was still ongoing. Luckily for the empire, however, Shalmanassar's choice for a successor was a right one, as Shamshi Adad V proved himself to be a capable king, and after four more years, he was able to crush the rebellion and restore peace to the empire. The fate of his brother, or half-brother, is not recorded anywhere, and unlike regular rebels, I can't say for sure that he suffered the same fate the Assyrians usually reserved for rebels, as this was the first time that the leader of a rebellion was of royal blood. We don't even know if he was executed. This peace, however, was a costly one. Assyria itself had probably suffered greatly, as the king would have given no quarter to the rebels, even if they were Assyrians. The economy was ruined, and the royal treasury empty. Most importantly, the great Assyrian army and its manpower were drained by the seven years of civil strife. Another front greatly affected by the rebellion was Assyria's relations with Babylon, which we'll get to in a bit. Unfortunately, perhaps due to the empire's state, or due to his relatively short reign, we know far less about Shamshi Adad's reign than his two predecessors. Despite the rebellion and the few resources at Shamshi Adad's disposal, during the remainder of a 13-year-long reign, it seems that he was able to maintain most, if not all, of his father's conquests, while overseeing the recovery of the empire. He was also active militarily, launching seven campaigns. The first three campaigns, launched in 819, 818, and 815 BC, were directed against Urartu. The period of civil strife gave the northern kingdom a period of respite, and perhaps allowed for some raids into Assyria. The purpose of these campaigns was to raid rather than conquest, and in all three campaigns, it is recorded that a tribute of horses was received. 
the target of the next four campaigns was none other than Babylon. This time, it wasn't out of any neighborly intervention or assistance. It was for the sake of attack. We don't know the cause for this shift in Assyrian policy, especially since, remember, Shamshi Adad's father and grandfather both had a treaty with Babylon, which was respected throughout their reign. Hell, Shalmanassar III even assisted Babylon's rightful king in a civil war of his own, and probably had a chance to annex it outright. But instead, he chose to basically do nothing. The most probable cause for this shift was probably Babylon's role in the rebellion. Perhaps it took advantage of the situation to extort Shamshi Adad. Perhaps it took some territory with the pretext of assistant and didn't give it back. Perhaps it didn't assist Shamshi Adad, or if it did assist, the king saw the assistance as lacking. Whatever the reason, Shamshi Adad launched four campaigns against Babylon, from 814 to 811 BC, in which Assyria came out victorious, receiving much tribute and concluding a treaty regarding the border between the two states in its favor. Shamshi Adad V died after the last Babylonian campaign. He had ruled for 13 more or less successful years, during which he was able to bring back peace to the empire and even managed to launch foreign campaigns. However, it was also during his reign that the signs for the period of decline in the empire's fortunes may have begun to appear, as the great rebellion he inherited, as well as his almost exclusive focus on the eastern front, helped sow the seeds of future troubles that were to arise. Shamshi Adad V was succeeded by his son, Adad Nirari III, about whose 28-year-long reign we know even less than that of his father, as there are no surviving native Assyrian sources covering it. From the surviving sources that are available, he seems to have been an energetic ruler who constantly led his armies. He was nonetheless unable to stop his empire's decline, a decline that would hit with full force with his death. This decline was caused by three factors. First and foremost was the decline of the imperial apparatus and authority, caused primarily due to the Great Rebellion that sapped the central government's strength and resources, which in turn weakened the king's ability to assert his authority and will, especially when troubles came knocking on all fronts. Two, with central authority declining, commanders, governors, and local rulers across the empire began to act increasingly independent. They would never go so far as to declare independence and would remain nominal subordinates of the king, but by the reigns of Adad-Nirari III's sons, they gave little heed to the king's commands, as each carved the domain for himself, and some went so far as to lead armies on campaigns on their own. Some peripheral territories also broke away from the empire. 3. As internal unity and order collapsed, external threats on all fronts arose to take advantage, chief amongst them being a now vengeful Babylon, which was expanding north, as well as a resurgent and not less vengeful Orartu. Each had its own score to settle with the Assyrians, and took advantage of this period of Assyrian decline to recover territory. With Adad-Nirari III's death in 783 BC, the empire entered a period of weakness that would last for 38 years, during which three sons of Adad-Nirari III, Shalmanassar IV, Ashurdan III, and Ashurnirari V, ascended the throne. During their reigns, central authority beyond Assyria itself collapsed, taxes and tribute were not received, while the empire's vital trade routes were blocked by the empire's enemies. The priesthood, either taking advantage of the situation, or being left as the local spiritual authority, greatly increased their power and wealth. So weak was the power of the king, that for many years, the kings are recorded as staying in the land, that is, 
unable to campaign, a near blasphemy for the Assyrians. The mighty king of Assyria became little more than a puppet whose rule was severely limited and eclipsed by military strongmen, particularly that of a man called Shamshi Ilu, who rose to the rank of commander-in-chief of the army. Each one of these strongmen ruled a territory of their own, led armies, and even erected steles of triumph for themselves with no mention of the king. With such weakness and so many insult to Assyrian pride, rebellions began to break out in Assyria, especially during the reign of the last of Adanirari III's sons, Ashurnirari V. The future of Assyria looked bleak, as total collapse looked imminent. It was in one of these rebellions, however, that our next great conqueror and the restorer of Assyria first enters the stage. Regarding sources, despite being one of the greatest, if not the greatest king in Assyrian history, until the middle of the 19th century, other than a few mentions in the Bible of some Assyrian king called Tiglath Pileser, who threatened Judea and Israel, there were simply no other sources. This is true for the new Assyrian Empire in general. It was only in the middle of the 19th century, when the ruins of the ancient city of Kalah were excavated for the first time, that clay tablets were discovered that held precious information about the Assyrians and their great empire, and it was only after they deciphered and translated the inscriptions that they realized that this guy from the Bible wasn't some random king, but one who took his empire from the brink of total collapse to new heights. So, as I mentioned before, it was through a rebellion that erupted in the capital of Kalah in the spring of 745 BC that Tiglath Pileser III deposed Ashur-Nirari V and ascended the throne of Assyria. Regarding his life before becoming king, we know very little, so I'll start with what we know for certain. He was a native Assyrian and was clearly a man with proven abilities and military experience, having reached by the time of the rebellion the position of the governor of Kalah, the capital and by now the greatest city of the empire, which also meant that he was well acquainted with Assyrian imperial politics and bureaucracy. We also know for certain that no matter which origin story one would believe, Tiglath Pileser was a usurper. Yep, perhaps the greatest king and conqueror in Assyrian history was a usurper. Okay, now for the uncertainties. We'll start with the name. Tiglath Pileser wasn't his original name, but rather the title the king took for himself when he took the throne. In some sources, it is mentioned that his original name was Pulo but this name is mentioned in the annals as the name he took for himself when he took the throne of Babylon, and in most sources, it isn't considered his original name. As for his title, the pronunciation of Tiglath Pileser actually comes to us from the Bible, and is the Hebrew pronunciation for the Assyrian, Tukulti Apil Ishara, meaning, my trust is in the son of Ishara, that is, Ashur. He probably took this title in order to link himself to one of the great Assyrian kings of old, Tiglath Pileser I. Regarding his ancestry, in his own inscriptions, Tiglath Pileser claimed to have been a son of Adad-Nirari III, and thus had the rightful claim to the throne of Assyria. In reality, we just don't know. He probably wasn't a son of Adad-Nirari III, but it is very likely that he was part of the royal family. I say that because being a usurper, one would expect that it would have taken some years before the new regime would have felt secure and confident. And yet, within only six months, Tiglath Pileser had already left the capital and embarked on his first campaign. 
only a man with a very, very strong claim to the throne, whom enjoyed wide acceptance of the population of not just Kalah, but also Nineveh and Ashur, as well as that of the army, what was left of it at least, could have achieved that. And I just don't see how one of humble, or even mere noble origins, could have achieved that. An obviously brilliant and energetic leader, when Tiglath-Pileser ascended the throne, he clearly already had an idea about what he thought the empire needed, and he wasted no time in trying to deal with the empire's problems. And they were many. The army was shattered. The empire's economy and trade networks were in ruins. Many of the outer provinces had broken away. Many of the commanders and governors were independent in all but name. A rebellion like his could erupt in any second. And of course, the enemies of the empire had already started taking advantage of the empire's weakness, taking more and more territory from the empire. Now, being that this podcast is about the greatest conquerors in history, I will obviously focus on Tiglath-Pileser's conquests. And let me just tell you, there was a lot of them. In just 19 years, Tiglath-Pileser not only restored the empire, he managed to conquer most of the world known to the Assyrians. However, his reforms were so influential that one cannot just ignore them, so I will cover them. In September 745 BC, Tiglath-Pileser set out from Kalah for his first campaign as the king of Assyria with his target being none other than Babylon. There was a lot at stake here. Again, no matter how strong of a claim he had, he was still a usurper. He had secured the loyalty of the people and the army, but if he was to lose his first campaign, who knew what could happen? And no doubt, many other prominent men, who may have also had royal blood, were waiting for the slightest weakness in order to try their own luck. So defeat in his first campaign wasn't an option. There are many reasons we could give as to why Tiglath-Pileser chose Babylon to be his first target. 1. Babylon was the traditional enemy of Assyria, and by defeating it, Tiglath-Pileser would immensely add to his prestige. 2. Babylon still held its religious importance, and by conquering it, Tiglath-Pileser could add the blessing of the god Marduk to his rule. 3. Revenge and national honor also played a part as Babylon took advantage of the turmoil in Assyria to annex some land. 4. And the one most logical strategically, to prevent any possible distraction from the south, so that he could focus on the northern and western fronts that were far more important for him and for the empire. The king himself described this campaign as a defensive campaign, because of course he did, claiming that he only invaded Babylon in order to protect Assyria's southern border from attacks and raids of the Chaldeans and Arameans who inhabited the areas to the south of Babylon, now called Chaldea. It does make some sense, as there seems to have been constant struggle in Babylon itself between the native Babylonians and the newcomers, the Chaldeans, as to who would rule the great city. But we all know that the conqueror's motives are never innocent. The Babylonian campaign was swift. All cities as far south as Nippur were taken, Assyrian forces raided the tribes of Chaldea and the highlands of Elam as a warning for them not to raid Babylon. A governor was appointed to rule Babylon, and two new cities were established to act as Assyrian administrative centers of the new province. One was named Kar Ashur, meaning Domain of Ashur, while the other's name is lost to us. Most notably, no bloodshed or violence of any sort is mentioned against the people or the city of Babylon. It is here that I will talk about the punishment that came to be most identified with Tiglath-Pileser, 
and one which he implemented throughout his reign, the forced deportations of conquered populations. While this punishment was implemented by previous Assyrian rulers, it wasn't their favorite punishment. Tiglath-Pileser, however, would prefer to refrain from the bloody punishments of his predecessors, preferring to deport defeated enemies and use them either as colonizers to repopulate conquered territories or as a cheap labor force. This preference, combined with Tiglath-Pileser's vast conquest, would result in deportations on an unprecedented scale. Although compared to previous Assyrian kings, Tiglath-Pileser's reign was less bloody, that didn't mean that the king didn't use the good old brutal punishments of his predecessors when needed. Stubborn enemies, and of course, rebels, were still impaled or flayed by the Assyrians. By deporting populations, the local population would of course be weakened, while the deported people's bind with their homeland would be severed. In their stead, loyal populations from other territories would be settled, incentivized with free lands and privileges, with the aim of spreading Assyrian culture and influence in the new province on the one hand, while discouraging potential revolts with a new, loyal base of support for the empire. And of course, populations from other conquered territories would also be settled in these new lands, and their loyalty would be only to Assyria. Being that it was his first conquest, it was in Babylon that some of Tiglath-Pileser's first reforms were implemented. First of all, Babylonian independence was over, as Tiglath-Pileser turned it into an Assyrian province. A eunuch was appointed by the king as governor of the great city. And in fact, it was Tiglath-Pileser's policy to appoint eunuchs, as these men, who were usually excluded from society and who lacked the ability to start a dynasty, would be far more loyal and far easier to replace if needed. We also mustn't forget that Tiglath-Pileser came to power at a time when many commanders and governors were only nominally loyal to the empire. From now on, defeated rulers were to be deposed, not be appointed as vassals while allowed to keep their hereditary positions and rights. By slowly replacing them with eunuchs, he aimed to curb their power while slowly splitting each of the provinces into smaller and smaller ones in order to prevent one man holding too much power. The king also deported thousands of people to the north, especially from the troublesome tribes of the Chaldeans and the Arameans, while settling many Assyrians across Babylon, especially in the previously mentioned new cities. After securing his southern and eastern flanks, Tiglath-Pileser was now ready to face not just his strongest enemy, but perhaps the strongest one Assyria had ever faced up to that point in its history, Orartu. The Orartian kings had taken advantage of the more than 50 years of turmoil in Assyria, rebuilding their kingdom and its army. And soon, they had not only reoccupied land lost to the Assyrians, they also expanded their realm so that it stretched from Lake Taksaldir in the north, modern-day Lake Sildir in Turkey, Lake Urmia and Lake Sivan in the east, and Melitin in the west. It had become so powerful that its influence spread to the south of the Taurus Mountains, turning the northern Syrian states, previously Assyrian provinces, into its vassals. When Tiglath-Pileser III ascended the throne, Urartu was ruled by Sarduri II and was at the height of its power, and it was beginning to extend its influence to central Syria, the now practically independent Cilicia, and the Mediterranean. The coming conflict wasn't going to be just another war, it was to determine who was the empire that would dominate the Near East. At this point, Tiglath-Pileser III knew that his empire wasn't strong enough to directly invade Urartu. When Shalmanassar III invaded Urartu, not only was Assyria in the ascendancy, Urartu was also a young state not yet fully formed. 
to invade the Armenian highlands now, with Urartu at the height of its power, was suicidal, and so the king decided on another course of action. He would first face Urartu in northern Syria, retaking previously conquered Assyrian land while weakening Urartu militarily and economically. In 743 BC, Tiglath-Pileser III marched west against the northern Syrian states that had allied with Urartu. These were Kumuh, Melid, Sam'al, Gargum, and Bayt Agusi. You can check out all these places on the map I've posted on the Facebook and Instagram pages. The links are in the episode's description. His target was the city of Arpad, modern-day Tel Rifat in northwestern Syria, which was the capital of Bayt Agusi, Urartu's strongest ally. Apparently, no opposition was met as Tiglath-Pileser marched and besieged the city. Word soon reached Tiglath-Pileser that Sarduri had assembled an army and was marching to relieve his ally. Leaving a small contingent behind, Tiglath-Pileser took the main army and marched northeast. The two armies met between the towns of Khalpa and Kistan in the territory of Kumuh. We don't have any numbers, but each side probably had between 10 to 15,000 men. The Assyrian army was victorious, and much plunder is recorded, including many horses, mules, chariots, the enemy's baggage train, and even Sarduri's personal ornaments, as well as many captives, including skilled worksmen that had accompanied the army. Still, it wasn't an overwhelming victory. Sarduri was beaten, but he was far from defeated, and he retreated to the mountains, while Tiglath-Pileser had to break off the siege and fall back to Assyria in order to recover giving the northern Syrian states some breathing room to regroup and continue resisting. The king of Bayt Agusi, knowing that he will again be the king's target, had reinforced Arpad so well that when Tiglath-Pileser eventually returned in 742 BC, it took three years of siege until Arpad finally fell in 740 BC. And when it did fall, Tiglath-Pileser showed no mercy. The city was razed to the ground, its inhabitants either massacred, enslaved, or deported, and its king executed. This act had the desired effect, and soon, all the rulers of the other states came begging for peace. In exchange for total submission, and heavy tribute, the king accepted, and northern Syria was back in Assyrian hands. The campaign of 740 BC didn't end there, as Tiglath-Pileser marched west to assert Assyrian dominance against another state that had broken off from the empire, the state of Patinu, which we mentioned in the previous episode. In a swift campaign, the king crossed the Orontes and headed straight to the capital of Kinalwa. After a quick siege, the city and its king suffered the same fate as Arpad. This act again had the desired effect, and soon, the rulers of Tyre and Damascus offered their submission. But as I said before, Sarduri of Uratu wasn't defeated, and before Tiglath-Pileser was able to stabilize the newly conquered areas, news reached him in 739 BC that the rebellion had erupted in the regions of Uluba and Kilhi instigated by the Urartian king. I wasn't able to find the precise location of these two regions, but they seem to have been located in what is modern-day southeastern Turkey, north of the Iraqi border. Tiglath-Pileser rushed east to crush the rebellion, but as soon as he arrived, the king received more troubling news. Some of the recently subjugated northern Syrian states, again with Urartian instigations, rose in revolt. Not much is recorded regarding this campaign, but it seems that Tiglath-Pileser was utterly ruthless, so that when he did head back west, this time, the region left behind remained quiet. All resistance was crushed, and much territory conquered and reorganized to two new provinces. A new city was founded, 
Ashur Ikisha, from where an Assyrian appointed governor, probably a eunuch, governed the new provinces. Peoples of defined cities were either massacred or deported to Assyria, and populations from Assyria and Syria were settled. Perhaps due to lack of time, or due to the stubborn resistance he may have faced, Tiglath Pileser wasn't able to complete the conquest of the northern parts of Uluba and Kilhi. They were, however, sufficiently pacified for Tiglath Pileser to head west in 738 BC. The leader of this new rebellion seems to have been the state of Samal, who, with Uratian support, was able to depose the pro-Assyrian party and form a coalition with a number of cities west of the Orontes all the way south to Hamath. Again, not much information is available, but we all know how the Assyrians treated rebels. Samal bore the brunt of the king's wrath, and the tribute exacted from not just the rebels, but from the whole of northern Syria was so great that he perhaps intended to cripple any ability for future revolts. Populations were deported to Assyria and the eastern regions, while rebels deported from western media were brought in to replace them. The lands of northern Syria were now divided into many provinces, to be ruled by governors appointed by the king, most of them probably being eunuchs. It is at this point that I will end this episode. By now, and in only eight years on the throne, Tiglath Pileser III had not only reversed Assyria's fortunes, he had also more or less restored its borders to where they were before the Great Revolt, and made it pretty clear to everyone in the Near East that Assyria was back. The rich provinces of northern Syria were now firmly under Assyrian rule, Babylonia was humbled, and Urartu put on the defensive. Thank you all for listening to the Conquerors Podcast. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate it and press the subscribe button. Your reviews and comments are most welcome. You can leave them on the podcast's Facebook and Instagram pages called The Conquerors Podcast, a YouTube channel with the same name, or on iTunes or any platforms you guys use to listen. You can also contact me directly at theconquerorspodcast at gmail.com. Next episode, we will continue the story of Tiglath Pileser III, as this great king wasn't going to settle for a mere restoration of the empire. No, 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 he wanted far more. And when we return, we will cover the greatest conquests of Tiglath Pileser III as he went on to lead his armies farther than any before him and conquer most of the world known to the Assyrians. See you next time!